Appreciate our praise band always. Thank you for Bobby for filling in with Aaron while he is gone. We always appreciate uh, Bobby. He can preach. He can teach. He can sing. I'm sure he can dance. I hadn't seen that. And he does grow the fastest beard of anybody I've ever seen. He could shave it and then be back next week. It'd be okay. Would you take your Bibles, please? Find 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 17 through 22. 1 Samuel chapter 4, 17. Find it if you can. In your Bibles, on your smartphone, some Bibles are underneath the chairs, but we appreciate you coming today. Now, if this is your first time here, maybe in a few weeks or some such, we have started a series of messages called, He's Still King, Let Him Reign. And so we're going to be looking at in 1 Samuel and following, uh, but we're certainly talking about uh, Samuel the prophet, talk about first king of Israel, uh, Saul, and then we'll take us through the summer as we're going to be talking about uh, David, some of my favorite lessons that uh, we can learn in the Old Testament about David, but all pointing to who Christ is and as he is king. Now, today as we, uh, as we continue in this series, and uh, we're in 1 Samuel 4, we want to keep your Bibles open, be looking at another passage in that chapter as well as some others. And so I want to kind of warn you before, uh, I don't know if you need warning, but before we read that uh, there are, this is a, this is a part of the story that's going to be told today. We're going to look at a slice of the pie, a portion of the story they're going to look at today. And then we're going to look at some before and some after and, uh, and tell the story of what's going on. But uh, as so the part we're going to read to begin with, it's not all that good. I mean, there aren't the best things that are happening. And it might be worse before it gets better. But by the time we get to the end, if you pay attention, you hang in there with us for the next few minutes and... Before we end the service, we will see certainly uh, the positive things and we're going to be learning lots of things about God uh, as we make our way along. But we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and uh, verse 17 and following. And this now is the word of God. Verse 17 reads like this. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from the seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed. And gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. May the Lord bless the reading. Of his holy word. Have you felt good? Are you feeling good yet? Well, hang in there with us. Ichabod, probably, at least in our day and time, will not forever at first be thought of, uh, of the name of the school teacher in the legendary story by Washington Irving, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Ichabod Crane. And it's interesting that in that story, perhaps, that there's a, it's a part of a ghost story that is told, and it's about. Uh, the headless horseman who always seems to be seen near the church. Uh, but it's probably because the graveyard's there near the church rather than because of the church itself. Ichabod means, you've got your notes there, it means no glory. Or as we just read here a moment ago, that the glory has departed. Now Ichabod 
Crane is a fictional character in this classic novel. But think, why would a parent ever name their child Ichabod? Anybody know anybody named Ichabod today? Probably, don't, probably not. Yet we have here in this story the high priest's daughter, Eli's daughter-in-law, in her grief and as part of her dying words, named her child Ichabod. Her motivation unclear, but it served as a warning and a marker that God's people had hit rock bottom. Spiritually, the glory of God, the Spirit of God was in exile from God's people, at least for a time. I got to tell you, as I read that, I, I first thought to myself, poor kid. I mean, to have the carry the name Ichabod all of his life. And while he's mentioned only briefly in a later chapter, maybe it served to actually remind him to pursue God all of his life. Well, some of you probably don't know, kind of like that Johnny Cash's song, A Boy Named Sue, maybe something like that. Look it up or go later. May our passage today serve to remind us of God's pursuit of us and that we are to be in an all-out pursuit of knowing and following and trusting God more and not less. May Ichabod never be written on the door of God's church. It was a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic that and there's a church that I still buy, pass by every now and then. It's about an hour's drive from here. And it said, on big letters on the sign, it said, church closed due to pandemic. And I thought, you, I thought of this passage, I thought you ought to write Ichabod on the name of that church. Now I understand they were suspending services, but the church, that is the body of Christ, we make up the church. We should be never closed. In fact, we're told Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And the church is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to move forward. Nothing's going to stop the church until the time in which Christ returns. Now, individual churches close all the time. They die all the time, sometimes because God's glory has departed. And while I believe we, Parkway Baptist Church, you, you are not an Ichabod church. Let's today, though, serve as a gut check and as a referendum to be sure that we are headed in the right direction as a church and as individuals, for we are either growing and moving in the direction that God would have us to go as a church and as individuals, or we are moving away from our fellowship and our dependence on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, we've been, we've been talking already about some of these spiritually dark days of Israel, known as the period of the judges. Samuel is the last of the judges. He's not mentioned particularly in this chapter, but he will be here in just a moment, as we will see. But judges... Or Samuel in this time of the judges is seen as a shining light during a dark time. And as bad as the days have been, maybe this chapter, these particular days, mark some of the lowest days or the times in the history of Israel. As they had to say and declare, Ichabod, God's glory has departed. So let's be sure we ask the right questions here today. So in the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about what was it that led to the God's people being thought of as Ichabod, and God's glory has departed. We're going to talk about how to avoid the spiritual lows and pitfalls in your life and in my life, and what would need to happen for your life to allow the Lord to reign supreme. What would need to happen in your life for the Lord to reign supreme? Now, hopefully you're following along maybe on the notes or be on our jumbotron, but we've got, a, uh, we've got kind of some movements here in the story in which we're going to tell some subtitles to kind of help us to work along and want you to be able to follow along with the story as we tell maybe the bigger picture here. And as we tell the story, we're going to be looking at and learning more about the attributes of God, which is always good. Whenever we read, we want to be able to say, well, what does this teach me about God? And 
what we want to do is, as you do it individually and as we do it sometimes in messages such as this, you know, sometimes the attributes of God are seen in the opposite of what's happening in the story. If the people are this way and they're not following God, then God must be this way. So some of that will happen. But here's, here's I, I love to tell Bible stories. And uh, this one is maybe not as familiar as some. Some of you may know well. I hope that you love Bible stories too. Here's the first part of the story, and it is this. God's people lose the battle. God's people lose the battle. Now, one of the enemies that they continue to, that the Israelites continue to fight the promised land in the land of Canaan, what was the land of Canaan, were the Philistines. The Philistines, the name actually means people of the sea. And these are the, some of the people that were living in the land of Canaan, also called the promised land along the southern coastal parts of the Mediterranean. And uh, of course, when the Israelites came in, they were to rid the people, uh, they were to conquer or destroy all the people that were living in the land. And of course, obviously, the Philistines, they did not uh, conquer and they continued to have battles with them. In fact, they continue to have battles with them. And sometimes they would even enslave the Israelite people until David comes along, until a little bit later in his kingdom. So, uh, but in fact, you know the Philistines. In fact, you know at least one of them because you've heard of Goliath. And Goliath was a Philistine. But one of those battles happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. 1 Samuel 4 and verse 1, it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to do battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Ephica. Now, Ebenezer is where it says that they were. Follow me here, because I don't believe this place was actually called Ebenezer when this battle took place. The Bible's telling the truth, but it's telling it in retrospective of what had taken place. And so it became Ebenezer later. Why would that be important? I'm so glad that you asked because I want to be able to tell you here in just a few moments as you pay attention. At this particular time, God's people lost that battle, lost 4,000 Israelites in the battle uh, that took place. And after the battle was complete, the elders come together with the people. And in verse 3, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 3, they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's good to ask the question why, but probably not proper in the way in which they ask the question. Because it certainly seems that they were blaming the Lord for the defeat. Now, I'm not going to say that the Lord did not have anything to do with the defeat, but we are always to, we are always to give acknowledgement and exalt the Lord for all the victories in this life. And we understand all victories come from him, but he is not to be blamed for the defeats. Now, if all we had were these three verses in 1 Samuel 4, we also might have a hard time understanding how or why God's people were defeated in battle against God's enemy. But this might remind you of another battle following the fall of Jericho. You might remember after the fall of Jericho, Joshua hastily sent a few thousand men to the city of Ai and they were defeated because when they came to the Jericho, after the fall of Jericho, they were not to take anything from the inhabitants that lived in Jericho. It was all to be dedicated to the Lord. But one man by the name of Achan, he took, he coveted and he took some things and put them under his tent. And so after they lost the battle of Ai, then Joshua cries out to the Lord and the Lord let him know that there was sin in the camp and the sin in the camp must be dealt with before the next battle could be won. So unconfessed sin, lack of repentance, it was what leads to defeat. As we've already revealed, this was a dark time spiritually in the life of Israel. 
The high priest Eli was very weak. He was not just physically, but spiritually. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt men serving as priests. They took the best of the sacrifices that people came and brought to the temple or the tabernacle. They kept it for themselves. They led other people to sin. They were living immoral and they were living ungodly lives. Thus, when the people, the Israelites, God's people, who were worshiping idols, who were serving other gods, they went to battle. The Lord, who provided many victories in the past, He was not with them in battle. And that led, of course, to defeat. By the way, they asked the question, leads us to believe, they didn't see their own sins. Or they were unwilling to confess and repent of their sins, but instead, they blamed God for defeat. A lack of love and a lack of respect for God leads to unfaithfulness. It's not necessarily in your notes, but I want to say it again because I want you to understand some of the problems that they had. A lack of respect and a lack of love for God leads to unfaithfulness. In the book of Revelation, there's the seven churches, the church of Ephesus. They were told to go back and to find their first love. Well, they were to return to their first love. Well, the more that you grow in your love for God the greater your faithfulness and the greater respect you have for God. So here's the attribute that we see, opposite of the people, and obviously because of this attribute is the reason they lost the battle. He is holy. He is holy. Our holy God cannot overlook sin, and because He is holy, He is just. Consequences there are for sin and judgment. There's a price that has to be paid. Now, reading this in light of the New Testament, we know that Jesus is the one who paid the price. He paid the penalty for my sins and yours. In fact... He's promised the victory. He's promised victory instead of defeat. Ultimate victory in giving life and eternal life. Victory over sin and death. Now you're still going to face battles along the way. But in those battles, you can have victory as you follow and trust Him. Ultimately, your victory and your salvation is ensured in Christ. You're part of the royal family. And He's still king, which is the title of the sermon series. He's still, but the daily battles... He's still in charge, but you need to let Him reign in every part of your life. Love and respect for your Holy Savior will lead you to be even more faithful because you and I, because He is holy, He's called us to be holy, which we can only be because of the repentance of sin, because of the blood of Jesus, and because we're seeking to please Him. Recognizing He is holy will lead us to a proper fear of God. Now, can I admit to you that sometimes I have a hard time understanding and even explaining sometimes what this holy fear of God actually is or represents? I think I'm learning more and more along the way. Jesus said on occasion, Come to me all ye who are labored, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, it doesn't sound like something to be fearful for, does it? But then we find in the writer of Hebrews, and he says, it is a fearful thing to fall to the hands of, a fear of a, the living God. Well, what should our attitude be about God's love and God's holiness? Well, think of the person that you respect most in this world. I mean, the person that you'd want to emulate, that you would never want to disappoint. Now, multiply that about a hundred times over, and you're probably we're getting closer to understanding God's holiness and our respect and love for him. But all second episode, second uh, movement in this story is God people, God's people lose the ark. God's people lose the ark. Now the ark of the covenant will become kind of a key part of the story 
here in these next few minutes. In 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 3, it says this. Last, we've read the first part. The last part of that verse says, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I want you to see how this was a desperate and a very unusual plan. For the ark had not been carried into battle since it came to the tabernacle at Shiloh and even in the wilderness or in the battle of Jericho and others, in which battle of Jericho is really no battle, but it was always the ark was carried in front at God's request or God's command. But it, it does remind us of the importance of the ark. It represented the presence of God but it was not to be worshipped or used as a good luck charm or to be used as an idol. The ark was that portable, wooden, gold-covered box. Approximately four foot long by two and a quarter foot wide. We may have a picture of it here. Well, it seems much bigger in the movies, I guess. It, it remained in the Holy of Holies behind the veil, except when it was being carried in the wilderness wandering. And when they first came into battle into the promised land, wing cherubim, heavenly angelic creatures were carved above it. The lid of the ark was considered the mercy seat. This is the place in which the blood of the lamb was spilt or sprayed at least once the, only once a year at the day of atonement by the high priest who was the only one who would come in to be able to see the ark that was taking place. It was spread for the atonement of forgiveness of sins of the people of God. Inside the ark was the second copy of the Ten Commandments. The first one, Moses, you might remember, smashed on the mountain. There was a jar of manna, the heavenly food the people ate in the wilderness, and the budded staff of Aaron, Moses' brothers. This is the place where God dwelt. It represented the presence of God. Now, we know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, and His desire has always been to dwell in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls who know and love Him. But a misuse and a mishandling of the ark has always led to tragedy, and it does so in this case. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, So the people of Shiloh, uh, people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now picture this. Here the Israelite people have been worshiping idols, They've been unfaithful. They're now carrying the ark into battle. This is the ark never seen by this generation except by the high priest, and that's only once a year. And here it's being escorted by Eli's sons, Dumb and Dumber, or excuse me, Hophni and Phinehas. It's not a good picture that's taking place, but they've convinced God's people, the leaders, that this is a good thing. Verse 5 said, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Such was the spiritual condition of the Israelites that they cheered at seeing the ark. They trusted that the ark would bring them victory. What's wrong with this picture? What's the problem? Well, the ark had become a god. Or at the most or the least, it may become superstitious and they were trusting it as an idol and not trusting in God. Or they had thought that they could manipulate God into thinking, well, if they carry God's ark into the battle of God, surely God's not going to let them lose the battle that was taking place. And be careful for there are times that we think and try to make deals with God or give God conditions instead of simply trusting in Him or confessing and repenting of our sins and following His ways and not ours. They had literally put God in the box. Now, which should remind us, 
Once we think that God must respond to us in a certain way, or we think we've got God figured out, or God must answer our prayers according to the way we think He should answer prayers, we've also put God in a box. And we saw how the Israelites responded when they saw the ark. Listen to how the Philistines respond to the ark. Verses 6, 7, and 8 says, When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague. In the wilderness, the Philistines were at first fearful of the ark. Now, do you remember Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's a 1981 movie, so it's only 41 years old. Do y'all, but y'all, y'all, the younger, I'm looking around. So you, you know this. You, in the movie, the ark is, uh, uh, they're searching for the ark of the covenant. The ark is described as a source of unrivaled power that Hitler and the Nazis are after. One of the lines from the movie says, The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark will be considered invincible. When the government agents are shown a picture of the ark and it has like fire and power coming from the ark, uh, one of them remarks, Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought came the response. But my favorite line in the whole movie Indiana Jones is drawing pictures of the ark or pictures to help the agents to be able to understand what the ark says. And he says in frustration, didn't you guys ever go to Sunday school? It's my favorite part of the movie. (laughs) Well, if they had gone to Sunday school, if they had read the Bible, they would have understood that it was not the ark that leveled mountains or that had power. In fact, it was God. But it was a lesson this generation of the Hebrews had not quite learned yet. But the presence of the ark which at first frightened the Philistines and was hoped to intimidate them, it might actually have had a reverse effect. Look at verse 9. Philistines are talking to one another and they say, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews if they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the ark might have rallied the Philistines. So the Philistines fought, verse 10. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. 4,000 had died before, 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell that day. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Now, God had already told them through the prophet Samuel when he was very young about the demise of Eli and his two sons. One defeat led to an even greater defeat and the loss of the ark because instead of trusting God, they trusted in something else. The ark that was meant to represent the very presence of God in the life of the Hebrew people became an idol. Listen, before we move forward, anything that you put before or instead of God certainly becomes an idol automatically because you put it instead of or before or in the place of God. It could even be something good. It could even be something that God has provided for you. It could even be a talent or a paycheck, or even a person. So here's the attribute of God in our second little part of the story here, and that is that we've already seen that He is holy, He is trustworthy. Trust in Jesus alone for whatever that you are facing today. If if you've placed your faith in Jesus already for salvation, well then trust Him, only Him, every day. Be careful and be sure that you're not trusting in Jesus plus yourself, or in Jesus plus something else. 
And if you've not yet put your trust in Jesus for salvation, then I'm sure that the Lord has brought you to this very place. Or if you're listening online today or live stream, that the Lord has you listening today because today you need to put your trust in Jesus. And you need to let Jesus into your heart and your life, put the weight of this world and the weight of eternity into His hands, ask Christ to forgive you. Because we're reading this Old Testament story, we understand that not only is He holy, but also He is trustworthy. Next movement in the story is that God's people lose Eli and his family. Lose Eli the high priest and his family. We've already read how upon hearing the news, Eli the high priest fell over and died. Now, Eli is pictured in the story as sitting at the city gate while this battle is taking place. He's waiting for news. He's certainly concerned about the battle taking place. He knows about the prophecy of he and his sons from young Samuel and the demise of his family. So he's concerned for his sons. But mostly, he's worried about the Ark of the Covenant. Eli is described in these passages as old, blind, and heavy. And upon hearing the news of the defeat of the Philistines over Israel, he had no response. Nor did he respond when he heard his sons had died. But upon hearing that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, he fell off his stool and broke his neck and died. Now God had not been defeated. Just as when Christ died on the cross, victory had not been lost. But judgment had come upon the Son of God who was innocent. And the judgment that was meant for us came upon Jesus. And it was a preparation for a greater victory. The loss of the ark, the the death and defeat of God's people represented God's ultimate displeasure. And at that very moment, at the very moment in which Eli and the Israelites were finding out that the ark had been captured and that uh, Eli's sons had died and that there had been this great defeat, Eli's daughter-in-law was giving birth. We read it a moment ago. We don't know her name. She was the wife of Phineas. Her midwives tried to bring her comfort that she had given birth to a boy, but she would not be comforted. And just before she died, now we're not told that if she died due to complications from childbirth or maybe like Eli because of the tragic news, but just before she died, she named that newborn baby boy Ichabod. And he was to be a living commemoration of the tragedy of the ark being captured by the enemy and the death of the family. By the way, if we had, were following these messages chronologically, which we will do most of the time, But if we had been doing that, this would have been the story that we would have looked at last week, which was Mother's Day. I don't know, but the death of the family and giving birth to Ichabod just maybe didn't seem that appropriate for Mother's Day. But after uh, some prayer and much consternation, I think the Lord had in store all along that last week we talked about Abigail and this story this week. For the greatest tragedy was not the defeat of Israel or the death of Eli and his sons or his daughter-in-law. It was not even the capture of the sacred ark of God. The greatest tragedy was that God's glory had departed God's people. But because of God's grace, that's not the end of the story. And it was not for good. But the attribute of God in this particular portion of the story is that He is to be glorified He is the God of new beginnings. Be sure that you're living your life and exalting the name of Jesus, the Almighty God and Savior. And as 
And know that we serve a God of grace and new beginnings. And even day, today is a day of new beginnings and recommitments. Even when things are at their very worst, or even if you're at a place that you don't have a clue of which direction to turn, God always has a plan. Now let's find out what God's plan is for the people of God, which leads us to the next movement in the story, and that is this, the ark of God returns to God's people. Now the Philistines took the ark of the covenant, and they took it and they set it up next to one of their most powerful gods, Dagon, who was a god of fertility, After all, to the Philistines, the ark was just another god, though they recognized it as a very powerful god, so they set it next to one of the most powerful gods that they knew. And when they did, lots of strange and very mysterious things began to happen. First, the very next morning after setting up the ark next to the god Dagon, they came in and the god Dagon had fallen on its face. And the people... Several people, men got together, they put and set up back Dagon again. I thought how, how interesting or ironic it is that the most powerful God had to have help getting standing back up. And then the very next morning after that, uh, when they came in, well, the God Dagon had fallen down again, and this time his head and his hands had been cut off. And then in the Philistine, that Philistine city, there were five major Philistine cities and five leaders, but in that particular City, all the people, maybe particularly all the men, began to have tumors on their bodies coming from rats that began to multiply in their city. And many of the people, the men, began to die from the tumors from the rats. Now, the closest thing we know of to anything like this uh, was the bubonic plague during the time in the Middle Ages. And then it was fleas that were on the rodents that were passed to the humans. And boy, aren't you glad you came today? To hear all about interesting things that uh, before they called the ark a god, before this happened, but when these terrible things began to happen, they began to address the God of Israel. They talked about the God of the gods of Israel, but when these things began to happen, they began to talk about Yahweh, even the God of Israel. First Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. First Samuel, first Samuel 5, verse 6, The hand of the Lord is heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Well, the people of that city, they decided they were going to send the ark to another city there of the Philistines. And when they sent that to another city there of the Philistines, the same thing. <laughs> happened in that city. And so then they decided to send it to another city. And the people in that other city said, oh no, you're not going to bring that death box over to our town. That's a paraphrase, but that's about what they said. So after seven months, they decided to send the ark back to the Israelites along with a guilt offering in hopes that the tumors would be healed and their people would stop dying. So they sent an offering back. Now the offering they sent back were five golden rats and five tumor, five tumor-shaped pieces of gold. Five in recognition of the five cities and the five leaders of the Philistines. Now, probably five golden rats and five golden tumors are not on your birthday or your Christmas wish list. But hey, gold is gold. And the way they sent it back is significant. They put it in a new cart. And then they brought some cows who had never been yoked before. Cows who had calves. 
back at the stalls that they were going to pull it back to the Israelites. And notice what they said, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. It says, And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box and add aside the figures of gold that we talked about, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, which is an Israelite city, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Well, guess what happened? Cows pulled it directly to the nearest city of the Israelites. It did not go back to its calves, did not go back to their stalls, but straight to Israel. The Bible says when the people saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Why would this be significant? Because they're fixing to be able to understand this attribute of God, this next attribute. And that is that He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Nothing and no one is beyond His authority to reach. He's always at work. And here with the Hebrew people still grieving over their losses, they rejoice to see the ark. And the Bible says some of the Israelites took advantage of the fact that they had seen the ark and remember no one this generation had never seen the ark and they came and they looked inside the ark and the Lord struck them dead but finally they took the ark they settled it in the place where it would stay for 20 years and took proper care as God intended which leads us to the last movement and the most important and that is that God's people return to God and they repent and they call on him. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 2 through 4. 1 Samuel 7. In verse 2 says this. From, that, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed. Some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Understanding that true repentance always leads to action. It always leads to some change that needs to take place. Today, let's put away all those things that would draw us away from God that would draw us away from serving Him and representing Him in a worthy manner. Let's draw to Him even more closely and follow Him and realize that as God was at work all along from the first battle that they lost to the taking of the ark to the return of the ark and even in tragic times, God was at work to draw His people to Himself. God today is at work. To draw you close to Him and even to those around you during the difficult times, the good times, even the tragic times. You know, as I read this story and I thought, you know, this is a lot of information. In fact, we've skipped over lots. Lots more probably could be said, but we've given you the gist of the story because I didn't know how to divide it into different parts over a few weeks. And, 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 and a lot took place for God to get His people where they needed to be. Well... God has done and is doing a lot to get you and I where it is that we need to be. Boy, look like a lot. We went from chapter 4 to chapter 7 here in a matter of a few minutes. A lot took place. Jesus, the Son of God, left the throne room of heaven. A lot took place. 
so that we might be able to know Him so that He might come and live amongst us and be able to die on the cross for our sins and rise again so that we might be able to have life. A lot is taking place. Why, why would the Lord go to all this trouble for these people who had been unfaithful? Why would Jesus go to all the trouble? Because He loves us and He cares for us and reasons that we probably could not fathom of why He would do these things. So I'm asking you, don't put it off. Don't wait to draw close to Him and to put away those things that do not need to be a part of those who are followers of Jesus and cling to those things which are of God and cling to those Him. There's another battle that is to take place. It's in verses 7 and following. Verse 7 says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God, and he offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. In the very same place in which they had lost that first battle we read in 1 Samuel 4. Very same place in which the battles had taken place. Which they lost with the Ark of the Covenant. Now they had victory. Make sure we get this attribute of God. And that is this. He is forgiving. And He is victorious. You, you want to be sure that you're on the side of the Lord who's always victorious. Did you notice in this passage that he is the God of thunder? It believed that maybe the Philistines outnumbered the Israelites greatly, but then the Lord brought the thunder. And it so confused the people that the Israelites were able to defeat the Philistines. The enemy is to be confused. Not the followers of Jesus. When the world seems confusing today, stop and thank the Lord that because of Jesus, you don't have to be. Verse 12, it says that a stone was erected to commemorate that battle. And the name of the place was called Ebenezer, the stone of help. Like Ichabod, the name Ebenezer will be in our time and place mostly known by Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol which interestingly enough was written about the same time as the legend of Sleepy Hollow. But today I want you to recognize that he is our stone of help. 1 Samuel 4 tells us that the place where they first lost their first battle and greatest battle and greatest defeat is the same place they had victory. The very place that you have experienced perhaps your greatest defeat, the place where you're having the most trouble, the place that's bringing you the most difficulty in your life is the very place that God wants to give you the greatest victory as we turn it over to Him and we ask Him to take care and submit to Him in all things and in all ways. And in fact, He's already brought the victory. He's already assured of that when He died on the cross and when He rose again. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 6 says this, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. 
Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the stone of help. Trust in Him alone for salvation, for daily living, and give an all-out pursuit for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We come today, even this Old Testament passage, we recognize that all passages point us to Jesus. Jesus is our stone of help. He is the one that we can depend on. And today, if you have been far away, you want to be drawn close to Jesus. Today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you want to be sure that today, don't let this hour pass before you call upon Him and ask Christ to be your Savior and Lord. And may all of us be ready. as He is the God of new beginnings. That again, to recommit ourselves to following Him ever so closely and to trusting in Him for everyday living. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you even now thanking you that we know are able to know Jesus as the cornerstone. He is our Ebenezer, our stone of help. So today, may we call out to Him. Jesus, come and help us. We call out to Him. Jesus, we know that you make all the difference today in our lives, that we can trust in you for today and for the days to come. Thank you for the salvation that we're able to have in Christ. Thank you for the assurity we have of everlasting life. And today, Father, we want to have that same assurity that you're walking with us today and that we can trust you. Father, we pray if there's one here today, one listening today that does not know you as Savior and Lord, now is a good time to call upon Jesus, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and ask Christ to come in. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to reveal more of yourself to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we lift these prayers. Amen.